You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Shabbat Shalom. Um, thank you, Rabbi, for those lovely words. I have only two things to say. The first is I don't need to die now um, because what eulogy could be better than that? That was, that was really good. And, and I, only wish, I only wish that my mother could be here <laughs> to offer the rebuttal. And the second thing I will tell you is that um, Rabbi Knopf was one of those individuals who the moment you meet him, you know that there's something authentic and special about him. I know I'm telling you what you already know. Um, this congregation has been extraordinarily blessed in its rabbis. Um, you know, Rabbi Creditor, Rabbi Knopf, how, how good can it possibly get? but uh, you, you have models of rabbinic authenticity and wisdom and compassion that are extraordinary. And I knew that the moment I saw you, so you have exceeded my high expectations for you and you continue to do that. Secondly, I have a third I want to tell you before I say what I'm going to say, is that um, when I graduated from rabbinical school in 88, um, I had to go try out for different congregations, as do rabbis all the time, and uh, I was scheduled to go to this congregation that I really wanted to work at, and the weekend was Tazria Metzora. So, you know, oozing body fluids, that was the stuff I got to work with to try to get these people to hire me. And I am told that although the vote was uh, largely in my favor, there were two people who voted against me because they said if he was that disgusting before he had a contract, imagine what he'll say once he gets one. (laughs) So this morning, I want us to try to do the impossible. I want us to imagine where we're headed. And what can we do as an institution, as a community, as a people, to prepare ourselves so that the Judaism of tomorrow is robustly present in this place. And so that while we are faithful and true to the traditions that our ancestors and God worked out between them, we're able to present it in such a way that we don't lose the next generation. And the next generation is at risk of being lost, as you well know. There are large numbers of people who define themselves as Jewish and have having no religion. There's a significant number of people who describe themselves as Jewish and practicing a different religion. And then there's the trickiest category of all, the people who say that they are Jewish and practicing Judaism, but would never be caught dead in a synagogue. So how do we meet the needs of those people? And I want to tell you where I start my assumption. I believe that God is not through with the Jewish people, and that we have been chosen to be representatives of the kinds of community that are capable of enhancing humanity and of transforming the world. 
we are called to be the people who live our lives in such a way that it is immediately evident that we serve a God of love and justice. I believe that Judaism reflects not only the wisdom of a particular slice of humanity, the Jewish people, but that our tradition, the Torah, and the commentaries that have spun off of it represent the eruption of the divine into words and represent the capacity of a wisdom that can waft across the ages and apply in radically different situations with great relevance, reorienting us to who we are truly meant to be. And I believe that we live in the greatest country in the history of the world. And I say that fully cognizant of the ways that the United States falls short. But that having been said, you know the old joke about the two people who are camping and they stumble across a bear on the trail and one turns to the other and says, quick, let's run. And his friend says, are you crazy? We can't run faster than the bear. And he says, I don't have to run faster than the bear. I just have to run faster than you. But we live in a country which gives us the freedom to think, to speak, to behave as our conscience dictates. And that, as a Jewish community, is a privilege that has been afforded in no other time and place. Which means that we have a responsibility for Judaism to be a beacon of light, not merely for the Jewish people, but to contribute to the common welfare. That we owe our fellow Americans our contributions to the issues of the day. What light might Torah shine on those issues? Those are my premises. But now how do we, how do we bring about the kind of community that might appeal to the unsynagogued, to the people who are still recovering from a difficult childhood encounter with a rabbi or a cantor or a Hebrew school? There are such people out there. How do we make this a place in which Jews and non-Jews are drawn because of the warmth and the wisdom that they find that help them live better lives? So I have a couple thoughts that I want to offer. This is always the dicey part of the talk. Um, I mean this not critically of anyone here. The music is lovely. The rabbi is cute. He's also smart. Smart helps, too. Um, you are warm and welcoming. But I want to imagine, if you would, someone who comes off the streets who isn't used to a synagogue and someone who knows that they're Jewish. They've not been given much by way of what that means, but they think there's got to be something there. My goodness, it's lasted for so long. And it's at the basis of Western civilization. And Christianity acknowledges that its roots are Jewish. So I'm going to check it out. And so one Saturday morning, this poor innocent shows up at the back door of the sanctuary. And what does he encounter? He encounters a book that he doesn't know how to open. Literally, he doesn't know how to open the book. He encounters prayers in a language that he doesn't know how to read or speak. 
so that the words are opaque, and then when he looks at the English, it's not much better. Opaque words, what does it mean? He hears melodies that are alien, meaning most of the tunes we sing are melodies that were developed in a very different time and in a very different age. And it's true, we no longer accompany them with a choir of 12 and an organ. Alas, I'm one of the people who likes that music. But we're still singing those songs that come from a very different culture than our own. And we do them in a way that nobody would ever do. When is the last time you went to see a musical production which consisted of a person standing in front of the room and just singing? Never. So the voice is beautiful. This is in no way a criticism of your wonderful Hazan or of any wonderful Hazan. But nobody does that anymore. And, and it looks to them like the community is ancient. I mean that unoffensively too. But let's face it, you're no spring chickens. <laughs> so if this person who wandered off the street is younger than 40, they're gonna do a quick scan of the room and say, I can't stay here. And off they go. And all of the accumulated wisdom and all of the insight and all of the ways that, that you could help them live better lives, all of the ways that God through Torah could help them live better lives, they won't give it a shot. When I worked for a politician, we were told that people look at political ads the same way they look at any ad. So you give it two seconds when you look at a billboard. And if there isn't something in those two seconds that makes you read the rest of it, you don't. What's the five-minute draw? What pulls them in? So I would like to offer three proposals for you to consider as you consider this process of reinventing yourself to meet a new age. And, and here's what I want to promise you. The basic insight of conservative Judaism is that it is highly traditional for Judaism to reinvent itself. The Judaism of the first temple was very different than the Judaism of the second temple. I don't mean by that the building next door and then this building. <laughs> the Judaism of the second temple was radically different than the Judaism of the Mishnah and the Talmud, which itself was radically transformed in the medieval period by the great philosophers, people like Maimonides which itself was again radically transformed by the Kabbalists and then by the Hasidim. Judaism has a rich intuitive knowledge of how to take the ancient message, repackage it, and deliver it to the next generation. And if we don't do that work, we haven't been traditional. Judaism has never frozen itself. It's not a fossil or a relic to be handled gingerly and passed along. It's meant to be the breath of our lives. 
It's meant to be the rhythm of our calendars. It's meant to inform our families and our children and our elderly. It's meant to be with us when we lie down and rise up and when we walk upon the way. So what's it going to take to take the beautiful assets of this community and of synagogues all around North America and to repackage so that we are authentic to ourselves and our core mission, but at the same time capable of reaching people for whom this would be a nightmare. One, I need to push you to think harder about the role of music. Meaning, I love the traditional liturgy. I'm, I'm not going to advocate changing the words of the prayer book because whatever your prayer book says, someone's going to have trouble with, and you don't rewrite Shakespeare. And the Siddur is our Shakespeare. But we need to be singing it in music people recognize. Walking to shul this morning, I was talking to your rabbi, and it occurs to me that Virginia is heir to a great musical coming together. Why am I not hearing bluegrass in this synagogue? Why am I not hearing gospel melodies in this synagogue? You can sing in Hebrew and do bluegrass. You can. Right? Why would you not give your synagogue liturgy a distinctly southern flavor, such that it becomes something people want to hear? because it's great. You, you can't listen to great bluegrass without wanting to get up and dance, can you? I can't. I, I may be the only Southern California who listens to bluegrass, but I do. Or gospel. I, I will tell you that when I listen to gospel, I do close my window because I'm worried that people are going to hear me belting out about the need to be born again, and that might underwrite my credibility as a rabbi. <laughs> But I want you to think about what would it look like to have a rich musical heritage that's unique to you, meaning that a synagogue in Boston could never do, that a synagogue in Los Angeles could never do, but people would walk in from anywhere in the South and they would say, I feel at home in this. I can pour my soul into this. And there are a host of ways to do it, but one of the ways you can't do it is by having one singer, however talented, stand in front of the room and sing at you. Right? Nobody goes to those kinds of events. Right? Nobody does that. So in an age in which people don't even listen to the radio anymore because they've recorded the music they like, and that's all they listen to is the music they like, I can't tell you the last December when I listened to a Christmas song because I don't have any on my iPod. Right? So in that age, you need to be competing with the music people go and hear on a Friday night when they're not coming here, or Saturday night after they're done being here. And your music needs to be as good as that music. So I want to put that to you as a challenge, right? and to your chazan as an opportunity, because what person with those musical gifts wouldn't love to be the center of a musical revival in which you integrate the local music with Jewish words, and you create something unprecedented. You do that, I promise you, you will improve your attendance.
people will start to know that there's a revival going on in this place because they'll hear it out in the streets. And depending on your halachic stance, I want to encourage you to even explore the great heresy of musical instrumentation, right? Because, and, and by the way, music can be a bunch of different things. At, at my synagogue, where the music is incredible, you can go to Ikar's website and you can listen to their music. Their chazan has written music that sounds like what, what they call these days world music. World music is anything but Europe. Um, so some of our songs sound Latin American and some of them have an African beat or an African melody. Some of them sound Asian, right? But the music is amazing. The words are straight out of the prayer book. It's all traditional liturgy. And the only musical instrumentation is a group of singers who stand around with the chazan and make us all want to sing because it sounds so great. And they use drums. You have to use drums. You got to use drums at every service except for funerals, right? Okay, so you have to up your game with the music because that's, that's what the world is calling for. And here's the thing, if you do it, you're gonna find you love it. You'll find that it will pick you up too because as the rabbis note, the Torah is itself a song and music opens the heart in ways that speeches can't. Do you know biologically, neurologically, that Humans are one of the only species that appreciate music and that what music does is it activates every part of your brain. When they do brain scans, your brain on music, the whole brain lights up, right? It's one of the only activities um, that do that. There is one other activity that that's true, but you can't do that in the sanctuary. <laughs> and I don't think there should be a shul program for that. Right? But music engages your entire being. And isn't that what we're supposed to be doing in the synagogue, is being engaged, all of us? So I want you to rethink the music. Second thing I want you to rethink. In the ancient and medieval period, Jews asked universal questions, and they mobilized Jewish tools to address those questions. So Sadia Gaon, Maimonides, the great rabbis of the Talmud, they ask questions like, what does it mean to be human? What is it God wants from us? How should we treat our neighbors? How should we treat our workers? How should we build a just society? What does it mean to live with non-Jews? And how do we live with them in dignity and create distinction at the same time? Those were the kinds of questions. How do we treat the earth? Since we have a relationship to the earth, how do we live with the earth in such a way that we can hear its wisdom and it can be sustaining? Those are the kinds of questions that run through ancient Jewish texts. Universal questions, Jewish tools for answering the questions. In the modern period, they turned that around. They reversed it. They started to ask itty-bitty little Jewish questions and then they used universal tools to answer those questions. How can we best augment Jewish survival? Let's hire a sociologist. It creates questions that are unworthy of a covenanted people. Jewish survival is important only if it contributes to the world. I want to be clear what I mean by that. I'm not here talking about the extermination of the Jews. Obviously, we have the right to safety and security, as do any other people, and we need to attend to our biological safety. 
But the threats in the United States are not to our biological well-being. They're to our having a different identity than the rest of the country. And that's only worth having if we have something unique to contribute. Synagogues have become centers of myopia in which all we do every week is we address itty-bitty little Jewish questions that no normal person would care about. And because of that, we speak to empty sanctuaries, because it turns out most Jews can't be bothered by that either. So I need us to reverse that trend. I need us to go back to the more authentic ancient model that Judaism is the place you go to to get the tools to figure out how to be a decent human being. What does it mean to live your life in the light? What does it mean to walk with dignity and to treat others with dignity? How do we craft a community in which there are no, no one on the margin and no outsiders? How do we take the great prophetic ethics of Isaiah and Amos and Micah and make them speak in America today where people are so interested in their own self-advancement, in their own material culture, that they neglect the voice of the Spirit to their own impoverishment? People here today, I don't mean here Richmond, I mean in the United States, are wealthier than any other society in any previous time, and they're also more miserable. How can that be? Because you can't buy happiness. Because money is a wonderful tool to achieve certain goals. But the goal is human connection. And so my final thing, in addition to then shifting the kinds of topics that we teach and speak about and bring our texts to bear. Final thing is this has to be the place where human relationships come first. People are more important than ideas. People are more important than abstract theory. And we have created institutions around the country in what matters most is that we punctually start at 10 and we end at 12, and if you get in the way, we'll run you over. <laughs> that cannot be. It cannot be that someone walks into this room, spends a Saturday morning trying to navigate the book that's backward, written in a language they don't understand, with translations that are not a lot clearer, and music that doesn't really have a group singing with it, and then at the end of that they don't get invited to lunch by someone. That cannot happen. For 10 years, I've been telling conservative rabbis that the problem of conservative Judaism is not our central institutions, and it is not that we have bad ideas. Our ideas are great. The problem is, you can come into our synagogue and walk out three hours later a stranger still. And y'all are Southerners, so that's even worse that it could happen here, right? I mean, from New Yorkers, what do you expect? But hospitality is a Jewish tradition. Here's what I want to tell you. If conservative synagogues around the country made a serious effort to make sure that every single person who walks into the sanctuary walks out with a Shabbat invitation to lunch at someone's home, 
we would turn around our demographic slump overnight. The reason former conservative Jews go to Orthodox synagogues is not because they become theologically Orthodox, it's because those people invite them home for lunch. Easy solution, isn't it? That's all you gotta do. You just gotta prepare an extra place at the table and then you gotta make it your business. The rabbi can't do this. The cantor can't do this. You have to look around the sanctuary and say, huh, who do I not recognize? Or who looks lonely? And then you need to go over there representing the entire Jewish people and you need to say, you would make it possible for me to have Shabbat if you came over to my house and had a meal with me today. And if they say no, then you say, okay, next Shabbat. But you nail a date. So here's what I want to ask you to work on on your own. And I ask you this on behalf of the conservative movement, which I continue to believe in and love. I believe our best days are ahead of us. How could they not be? You have awesome rabbis, you have wonderful caring congregations, you have great musical talent. How could our best days not be before us? If, if, if. If we create a vibrant musical culture that will allow people to feel our prayers before they understand the words. That's one. Two. We create centers of human values such that Judaism is recognized as a world wisdom tradition, which it truly is, and that Judaism gives people the tools to live lives of meaning and of grace. Three, that the synagogue becomes the place that puts people first. Not some people, not sometimes, but all people always, so that anyone who walks into this room knows immediately that God loves them, that they are cared for, and that their presence is a gift. If you can work that out, then your problem will not be a half-empty, older synagogue. Your problem will be that the space isn't big enough and that's the problem that would be a joy to address. Shabbat Shalom.